Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, with a look at the 1984 Grammy Awards, Michael Jackson's triumph, the one artist who briefly stole the spotlight from him that night, as well as Boy George's gaffe, the police's no-show, and more. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And if we're doing the 80s, that means it's Ed Legg is the co-host. And we are discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And tonight, Matos has taken us to the Grammys, Los Angeles, February 25th, 1984, Shrine Auditorium. Did you watch these kind of Grammys, Ed? Do you remember ever watching the Grammy show back in the 80s? You know, I watched it in the 70s for the first time, probably in 74 or 75, and was, uh, as a rock fan, a little bit unsettled. I did not watch it this night, but I was at the Associated Press photo machine when Michael Jackson's photo of all those uh, gramophones came aboard. Yep, yep. He, he cleaned up on this occasion. I mean, Michael Jackson dominates this chapter. And one thing I want to say when we start is that I think we're starting to see the, the the real cleverness in Matos's structure here, and 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 choosing an event like the Grammys is great because it gets gets him an excuse to touch on basically everybody who's there, or everybody who was nominated for an award and wasn't there. Like in this chapter, he sneaks in basically the story of the police, Donna Summer, the whole high energy uh, movement, which was the underground gay dance scene, and this was happening at the peak of the AIDS epidemic, you know. And so he works all that stuff in. He um, 
you know, it's just an amazing chapter. He works in a lot of stuff really quickly. Let's get to it. But he starts with John Denver. And uh, did you notice the sly little thing he mentioned about John Denver? Not until you until it was pointed out to me by a, a wise uh, watcher of these things, i.e. you. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, he said he was into technology, which he was. Then he did. Wasn't his flying machine a, a strange not exactly your kit. normal plane. Oh John yeah, died in a homemade airplane, I believe. Oh god, that he flew out over the ocean, and so Matos just casually mentions that he was really into flying and really into gadgets. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, John never was the host, and if you weren't around, and and he's not one of these eighty. You don't think of him as an eighties figure. I think people think of him more as an early seventies figure. But he was actually probably Truly. in the eighties because of yep. Oh God with George Burns. And uh, also, um, do you remember when he did that uh, song for Jacques Cousteau uh, about Jacques boat, and it was on the Muppet Show? Like, I mean, dude was big time. <laughs> it was kind of corny, but you know, he was huge. And one thing I didn't know that Matos points out is he was one of the richest men in music. I guess he got all the songwriting royalties, and he must have had a slide deal. And Matos drops Jerry Weintraub, uh, his manager, and 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 the Matos uses. Weintraub to represent all Reagan Democrats, which was a huge phenomenon. One of my brothers did it. Was it good Democrats who go went and voted for Reagan? And not that I'm blaming anybody. I mean, it was the moment of the times. But um, I thought that was a pretty clever way to work in the whole kind of reactionary spirit undergirding this era. That is so true. And John Denver, really, I mean, he was a multimedia superstar, and it nothing like. Dropping a name like Jerry Weintraub, the guy that, you know, Elvis, uh, Sinatra, Led Zeppelin. I think Jerry's name is on a concert ticket I have, but I'm not sure, so I'll check it for next week. Yeah, uh, Jerry Weintraub was a big time. He kind of pioneered, was the promoter who perfected the Arena Rock Tour with, like you said, Elvis. Yeah. And, and Frank Sinatra, you don't think of as Arena Rock, but he was playing arenas and, yep. and Led Zeppelin. And, and so a, a, a big deal in, in music history. And he was uh, Bob Dylan's, I mean, Bob Dylan, <laughs> John Denver's manager. But uh, Denver, Denver introduces the show with the big words this year were video. Boy George and Michael, and then the crowd roars Jackson. And that tells you what it's going to be. It's like Michael Jackson is just owning this night. And um, and we're going to hear a lot of it. And then he segues to Donna Summer, which is another one. And, you know, she 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 was a big thing in the 70s. I've done a whole episode on, on her work with Giorgio Moroder and essentially inventing electronic dance music. But in the early 80s, you know, she kind of, her career took a big, hit because she was the queen of disco and when disco became poison she was uh you know definitely took a big hit and then then she had a hit and i didn't know this i knew that she worked hard for the money was a hit but i didn't know that she had just had quincy jones produce an album for her um and put a lot of money into it that flopped so polygram wanted to drop her and and she had been on Casablanca, which was the legendary 70s label that had um, Donna Summer, it had Kiss, it had Parliament Funkadelic, it had tons of disco. And, you know, at one point in the mid-70s, one of the biggest record labels on earth, by the, by 1980, I think it was busted, and it was absorbed by Polygram. So she's under contract to Polygram. They drop her. She signs with Geffen. 
in the meantime, it turns out she still owes Polygram one more song. So she records She Works Hard for the Money and has her first and last hit in years. And and Polygram's pissed because they no longer have her under contract. And Geffen's pissed because they miss out on the hit. So that's that's the music that is for you. And they he, also, you know, he works. This is one of those great examples of him working in everything going on that year. And he brought up AIDS and, and the bathhouse culture and um, and then connects it to her. Uh, yeah, because of dance, but also. Go ahead. Uh, well, just that, you know, the knock on Donna Summer has always been that she was homophobic and she always denied that she had said this or said that. And I can't remember the exact details of what she was alleged to said. But Giorgio Moroder, her own producer, <laughs> Matos has a quote from him saying, yeah, she was homophobic. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Donna's passed on, so all is forgiven. But um, yeah, this was, an, uh, you know, the episode that, that Ryan Hargis and I did in the Techno Roll series um, on the high energy dance uh, music style and this AIDS era was one of the most heartbreaking episodes I've done. It wasn't the music I was close to. I was too young, too straight, too in the middle of border Texas to be going to the San Francisco bathhouses or whatever. But, you know, I later in life, I had some, some friends who were gay men from that era and all their friends had died, you know, and it was so sad talking to them. You know, I knew, I knew a couple of guys and, and they um, you know, were kind of like my wife's uncles, basically, from the hippie commune days. And they would talk about their friends, and so many of them had gone. And, you know, it was this horrific thing where this new hedonism and this new freedom had come along, and immediately, you know, AIDS is coming in. So, yeah, this is this is great craftsmanship by Matos. And he, so he gets that in there, and then he switches. Uh, he And he introduces Bob Dylan and Stevie Wonder because they're um, announcing an award. And I didn't write it down. I can't remember what award the police were getting, but the police were winning an award. And this is a perfect time to talk about the police because just, you know, the thing about 1984, and, and we're only in February 1984 now, is the shadow of 1983 is looming over this year, especially the beginning part, because you had Thriller, you had 1999, uh, you had uh, Synchronicity, the police's final album, which was massive. I mean, do you remember how you could not get away from every breath you take. It was constantly on MTV. And, you know, and they, they had just reached this point. It's amazing how a three-man band can become this unwieldy organization, an albatross. And they were at that point where they were so big and they hated each other so much um, that the thing basically just collapsed under its own weight. Why don't yeah, you take it's, a, it's astounding. It's astounding how... They did how much they disappeared. How the next thing I think of is Sting's solo career um, after that album. And and you're right. It was every breath you take that Bob, who I never realized was at an award show ever, a guy who wouldn't take the Nobel Prize is at the Grammys. And, um, you know, and but I knew that I, I was in a band with with a guy who was a huge police fan. And um, so I knew some background about some of the enmity that was going on with those guys. But another thing you pointed out is this this chapter, and it's going to be interesting to see as we go along. But this is the you know this is just the end of February. This chapter, and and you're so right. So much of what was already going on, the steam that was already being generated in in '83 was was you know part of the momentum that that made this year so potent. And um, and the police were part of it. And then yeah, they were a big part of it. And so what did what happened after that? I mean, you're right. They they did. 
Um, their, their manager, who also was IRS Records, Miles Copeland, said he really wished they'd done one more album. He, he felt like they had one more album to do to really, you know, tie a bow on it. Um, but, of course, we know they didn't, and they could barely – it doesn't sound like they could stand each other at all. No, I don't think they were ever friendly, and, and you know, they had worked so hard. And, again, Matos tells multiple stories. Actually, Steph's telling me it's time to cue, and I should have done it a while, but okay. because we're playing Donna Summer. She works hard for the moment. Donna Summer, she works hard for the money. And let's get back to talking about the police. So, you know, he tells basically the whole story of the band. And 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 they are also they're representative of two, of two things. They're not only one of the biggest bands of this so-called second British invasion, and they're absolutely huge, but they were also representatives of this kind of like we've talked about with Asia, and we're going to talk about later with ZZ Top of the way older artists use new technology to update their sound for the 80s. And so, you know. Sting and Stuart Copeland were both kind of prog jazz rockers, and Andy Summers had been like literally a first-generation British blues revival guitarist. He was in Suit Horn Rollo's band, big roll-up band, I think, and he was in Animals Mark II with Eric Burden. And they, I think, glommed on is too harsh, but they jumped onto the new wave, cut their hair, dyed it blonde, named themselves the Police, and they did change their style. It definitely wasn't punk. Sometimes it could be punky, but they incorporate a lot of reggae, although they denied it. And and they use a lot of technology to change their sound and modernize their sound. And Andy Summers really changed the way he played. So, you know, it was this this pretty novel sound. And Sting was a great pop songwriter, great singer. And they worked their asses off. They, they were not big superstars in England. I mean, they were way outshadowed by the Sex Pistols and the Jam and the Clash and that other other people in the UK. I mean, they, they you know, they had their hits and, and stuff, but it was their willingness to work for the American market, which a lot of the bands, the Jam basically didn't, I think they toured America once and never came back. The Sex Pistols, you know, had the one disastrous tour of, of minor market cities. The Clash did put the work in and break through in America, but the police worked harder and consistently and he tells the story of their 1979 tour when no record label support they're on AM records in the states no money they get in a van they're you know they're eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches sleeping three to a bed playing places like Poughkeepsie for an audience of 12 people and bragging about how they got an encore maybe even three encores but you know it just built this this hard work then they had done all these meetings at these radio stations. So when Roxanne comes out, it's a hit. Then there's more hits and more hits. Three, four albums in Yada Mandata, Ghost of the Machine. And so by 82, I guess 83, when Synchronicity drops, they're one of the biggest bands in the land. But the whole thing had just, um, you know, kind of collapsed under its own weight by this point. And, and they don't show up for the Grammys. So I, I, I'm curious. I can't remember for reading 
before if they come back in the story very much. But 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 you know, he's basically checked off his police book box. Well, a, a book like this, you're kind of always reading it and waiting. Like, is he going to talk about this guy that I think is important? Is he going to talk about this gal I think is important? That this band I think is important. So, you know, check. And and then. Uh, and again, the Grammys is perfect because then he segues into Big Country, who really kind of barely merit a mention, but they were definitely part of the zeitgeist. They were kind of a, they were more successful initially than U2, but I think in England they were seen as following U2, that, that same big sound, another Celtic band. There are all these bands that came in the wake of U2 out of Ireland, like Big Country coming out of Scotland, The Alarm coming out of Wales. You had the Waterboys also coming out of Ireland. And Big Country were the ones that broke through in the States. What was your take on Big Country and their novel bagpipe sound of guitars? They're one of the hard rock bands, or, or, or I, you know, hard rock might be too heavy a word, but um, in my constant quest for uh, something with some heaviness, I bought that album. And I, I think I bought maybe a dozen albums in 1984, and that was one of them. And they did, you know, they, they got through to me, and I'd already bought U2's War. Um, I already had Purple Rain at that point, but um, but I wanted something else, and they were the ones I reached for kind of blindly because I only heard the hit on 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 the classic hit station. And how was that album? I only I never did buy the album. I only watched the videos, so I, I never gave it the you know the acid tests of, of when it was one of four cassettes in your car. Was it solid all the way through? I was just trying to remember while you were talking about it. I'm sitting here. I'm in my two-room apartment in Columbus, Georgia, trying to remember beyond um, the song that was called Big Country as well, because that was one I heard, and now I might have to go back and listen to it. Yeah, we'll do and report back. And then and then they segue okay. again to Culture Club. And I've mentioned, you know, he's talked about Boy George quite a bit in the British chapter we did a couple weeks ago, and he's talking to him more, and he tells quite a bit of the story. And I'm really feeling like I need to read a book about the culture club because there's a lot more to this story than i knew but he kind of sets up what he's going to deliver later i think culture club's kind of the thread that there you know there's two big plots there's michael jackson getting all the adulation and then there's boy george doing a, a satellite from london at two in the morning uk time with joan rivers they get there the whole band and there's two chairs one for joan and one for george and the rest of the band is pissed it's two in the morning. They've stayed up all night for this. And then, you know, Joan Rivers was the co was the alternate host of The Tonight Show. Massive celebrity at the time. Great comedian. And she, you know, George is very much accepted. I, I love that. He, I think he called, quotes somebody calling, you know, saying, uh, there's a quote later. I'll save it for later. But anyway, he sets up this, this conversation with George and Joan, and he's going to come back to it. So we'll be talking more Culture Club in a bit. And they win Best New... Uh, they win Best New Artist, and then he skips to David Bowie. And David Bowie is another one of these figures who had a massive year in 1983. He was on the cover of Time Magazine, the Let's Dance album. You know, After a full decade and a half of working, he finally became one of the biggest superstars in America. He'd been a huge star in England since 72 or 73. And you know, Let's Dance, he works with Nile Rodgers, the legendary member of Chic, and the guy who's going to go on to produce like a virgin for Madonna and stuff. And he kind of saves saves is too much but but he he when david bowie invited Nile rogers to produce his album david bowie had a huge momentum because he'd done this great run of albums with brian eno and worked with Iggy pop all through the late 70s so he did lodger and uh scary monsters and uh you know heroes and all this a really great series of albums and then he does let's dance and it's 
a self-consciously pop album. And Nile Rodgers, there's a great quote where Nile Rodgers describes David Bowie playing uh, Let's Dance for him the first time on a 12-string guitar. And, and Rodgers' quote is, it must be fantastic to be white. Where I come from, if you write a song called Let's Dance and nobody ain't nobody dancing, you're going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I've read in other places where Rodgers talks about how he was really thrown by that. He's like, I, you know, we got to make this a dance song, but how do I do that? And then, and then he realized that the day before, like he had arrived in Switzerland and hanging out with Bowie, that Bowie had been talking about all these artists, especially like fifties, little Richard and, and, you know, particular artists. And Niles goes, ah, I get it. I'm going to draw on the things David played for me yesterday. And so he did. I think he brought in some twist and shout and create turned Let's Dance into a classic dance song. So, you know, pretty elegant way. I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to go back to David Bowie or not, because he's more of an 83 figure than an 84 figure. But, you know, check the David Bowie box. And then here comes yeah. Toto. And, uh, <laughs> and we laugh at Toto. But, you know, I, I have to. <laughs> I have to give it up for Toto. I mean, I think Africa has lasted and a number of their songs, I think, have lasted. And that sound uh, has kind of been vindicated. And Matos goes into this whole thing where they called it the beige style. And the thing was, the guys in Toto, like Jeff Beccaro and um, Steve Lukather and those guys, they were also session players in L.A. So they played on all the art, all the black albums. They'd play, you know, for Lionel Richie. They'd play for Michael Jackson. And, and they'd play for the Duke. Doobie Brothers and the Eagles, so there was this kind of crossover, and some people call it yacht rock, but there was just a smooth sound that both, you know, black and white artists um, that were nominally pop rock or R&B or whatever, it all kind of was kind of blending together. At the time, as a kid, I hated it, but Steph tells me it's time to cue, so let's hear Cindy Lauper, Money Changes Everything. And that was Money Changes Everything by Cindy Lauper, originally by The Brains, came out in 1979. She re-recorded it with the Hooters for her classic album, She's So Unusual. We'll be talking about Cindy in a minute. But, and, then he, and then he puts basically a nail through the, or a stake through the heart of Toto by mentioning, you know, they're basically done. They're coming off of a huge album, their fourth, uh, it's called Four, in 1983. And they played all over Thriller, but, um, but they're done. They're killed by MTV. And, you know, they, they were not good looking. And, I mean, they weren't bad looking guys, but they weren't young, stylish, handsome dudes. They were session musicians and, and they were done. What was your take on Toto? Did you hate him like I did? Or? Well, you know, I, I didn't at first. And, and it was in 78 when I first heard them. And they because they were a staple on FM rock radio, seemingly right off the bat. And, and it, they had a strong guitar sound. And then they were on all the time. And, you know, for the next, four or five years they were yes. you know rosanna africa you know like you said you couldn't get away from them and um and i i mean i know a lot more songs by toto than i do big country 
But I'll I'll tell you this, David Bowie. I think of David Bowie being huge in 1984, only because I saw a ton of his videos when I first got MTV. I was yeah. still seeing like maybe because it was on Friday Night Lights, I'm mean, Friday Night Lights, Friday Night Videos too, you know. And yeah, but I yeah. think of him as his being huge, even even though I know what he did before, because I, I was listening to that too. But Toto, yeah, I don't remember anything from them after this year for sure. Yeah, no, they just they just that era was over. That album-oriented rock era of '79 to '83, it was done. There was still some hangover, yeah. but but basically they're done. And then, yeah. and again, he uses this narrative motif of he can just follow what happened at the Grammy. So the next thing, the next award that came up was best producer. Of course, of course, it's Quincy Jones who had produced Thriller. But, you know, Michael Jackson got co-production credit on several songs. And he gets into how Michael was pissed that Quincy was getting any credit for this. And, and it's just kind of weird to think about that because they were such a great team. And Quincy had done so much for him between Off the Wall and Thriller. And yet, you know, I think Michael from being in the Jacksons and then everybody he worked with, I mean, unless he's working with Paul McCartney, He's better than everybody he's working with, you know. I mean, and Quincy Jones is no champ. Yeah. He's Michael Jackson, yeah. and and yeah. you know, and and he's going to get into a whole thing about his his issues with the Jacksons and how he kind of gets forced into doing the Jacksons reunion tour, and that was kind of ill fated. I really think that Michael's whole momentum. I kind of have a theory that musicians basically have one break in their momentum and they never really recover that first magic. And I think when Michael's hair catches on fire, we'll talk about that in a bit, that that was his break. And that, that even though he continued to make albums and be massively successful, it was never on the upswing again. I mean, you can't go up from Thriller. You know, he, he, yep. he was as big as you possibly could get. But he also then he mentions how the one thing that Michael was excited about was that he had gotten into the Guinness Book of World Records. And you know who cares about the Guinness Book of World Records? Who? Little kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Little that is so kids. true. That is yes. 100% true. In and seventh grade. <laughs> yes, yes. Most of my kids love the Guinness Book of World Records, you know. And so my <laughs> is stuck in childhood and, and you know because he's a child before you know he he lost he sacrificed yeah. his childhood for for the fans and this was when i started noticing stuff was weird because i can remember seeing michael next to brooke shields and that was obviously not a romantic match like i can remember yeah. seeing michael jackson with tatum on neil in 1979 or 78 79 at studio 54 on some kind of like good morning american news report from studio 54 and that seemed like that was like, ooh, wow, you know, Michael's dating a white girl, it's Tatum O'Neill, and and he seemed so young, and you know, his sexuality was kind of nascent publicly. People just assumed he was straight, and then you see him with Brooke Shields, and there's none of that friction that there was with Tatum O'Neill five years earlier, and he's sitting mm -hmm. next to Daniel Lewis, aka Webster, and I was onto that already because I'd been child molested, and I just I smelled. Oh man. You know, and uh, and that Good was when I was, yeah, I, I was, I was, I was, that was when I really got to be creeped out by Michael Jackson. And for me, it was like, if you've ever known somebody, like been in a group and somebody new comes in and just charms everybody and you love them at first, and then you start noticing that they're kind of evil sometimes. And mm -hmm. then you feel like you're the only one who's noticed. 
and everybody mm-hmm. else has fallen for him. That's how I felt about Michael Jackson for the next seven years. <laughs> so, um, yeah. God bless you. And I, I salute you. I, you know, I was starting to, I was starting to, he was losing me because he was starting to change his appearance. And I mean, I know that some of that was, in fact, I think all of that was from his abuse as a child from yeah. being called big nose and everything else. But, you know, b- before I forget, I think, you know, I think he also was starting to lose his mind with being this huge. And that's, yeah. that's where he's starting to scream about the great Quincy Jones, not getting credit. And I think you're, I could not agree more that the moment of truth or, you know, the moment that everything changed was with the, with the, with the Pepsi commercial. I think that is spot on. And, you know, I, I'm sorry you knew why, you know, what was you, you had better intel on what really was going on with the guy. And it's very sad. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's epically tragic. And obviously he hurt people uh, in his own right, but he was clearly hurt. And if you've ever seen the video for Ghost from the late 90s, and it's like this long, it's like a whole movie. And Michael plays multiple parts. He plays himself kind of as like Dracula in a castle, but he also plays this older kind of like middle-aged Jewish record executive type. And there's a scene where Michael's confronting this guy and you're just kind of, was that the guy, you know, like, oh, was that what happened? And um, yeah. And, and by the nineties, me and my friends were like, we were into Michael Jackson in a sick sense. Cause we, we just thought he was, you know, we knew something was wrong and we were just into, you know, messed up stuff. And, and Michael was yeah. definitely in that category, but let's keep moving. We got a lot to cover. So let's take our sponsor sure. break and come back. We'll, we'll talk about the Eurythmics and Cindy Lauper. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And so then he segues into uh, the Eurythmics, and it's interesting. You know, he talks about how sort of fashionless Dave Stewart is, and I kind of disagree. I think Dave Stewart had a look with the glasses and the jacket and everything. Uh, You know, he was a distinctive-looking figure, but obviously Annie Lennox was the one that that you focused on. And she shows up basically in drag for the Grammys, fake sideburns, looks like Elvis, and, and he notes, you know, for the first and only time that night, 
somebody stole the show from Michael Jackson and it was Annie Lennox. And then he segues to Cindy Lauper, uh, who uh, she and Rodney Dangerfield are introducing the next category, Best New Artist, which uh, it's kind of a tell. Mato says that she's obviously going to be one of the nominees next year because her album's already hitting. I guess Girls Just Want to Have Fun was the first song. And this was interesting that, that Rick Chertoff had produced her album. She, uh, the Hooters were kind of the backup band. And um, he finds this song by a guy named Robert Hazard because Girls Just Want to Have Fun. That's, I, I haven't heard his version of the demo, but the way they write about it, it sounds like originally it was more like what you would expect David Lee Roth to sing about girls. Just what <laughs> you know, girls as objects, girls as playthings. Yeah. And Chertoff had the vision and he brought it to Cindy and she's like, this is stupid. And he's like, no, no, let's, let's make it something else. And she lets her rewrite the lyrics hazard, you know, gives her permission to rewrite the lyrics, share the copyright. And I mean, for me, it was Purple Rain and Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Those were the two of the big pop albums later. Those were my favorites. I was all into the SST punk stuff, but but the the pop albums that I actually went out and bought were um, She's So Unusual and, and Purple Rain. And, and that album is just killer all the way through. And, um, and it's interesting, you know, that she was 30 by this point. And, and I remember when Madonna came out, and I was thinking, Cindy Lauper is going to run her into the ground. This girl is not going to last five minutes. Cindy Lauper is going to be here forever. What I didn't realize was Cindy Lauper was about ten years older than Madonna, and that makes a difference, yeah. you know. And so she peaked yeah. right at this time, and you know, had I think one big follow up, but but that was kind of it. And also, he tells this horrific stories about her origin, like she had been in cover bands in in I guess Long Island in in the seventies, and she was raped by multiple bandmates in one of these groups and she went back just to show them that they hadn't broken her it is so messed up i mean my god the poor woman it's just uh yeah i mean that was it was amazing it's just hard to fathom but but it tells a story how she had been in this band blue angel that was a critically acclaimed kind of you know rock band but didn't get anywhere then that band breaks up and she meets this guy at a party and they become lovers. turns out he started the management company and his name's David Wolf. He becomes her manager, puts the whole thing together and boom, you know, she's so unusual. And the segue then is to uh, back to the culture club because they win best new artist. Did you know any of this stuff about John Moss and boy George? You know, I, it's easy to look back now and it's like you say many a time, it, everything telescopes down and compresses. So I did read that or know that at some point that, that Boy George and one of the band members were lovers, but I'm, I bet I didn't know it then. So, yeah. um, you know. And not only lovers, but the drummer was the manager and Boy yes. George. And I didn't he know was, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was multi-talented he was multi-talented yes, yes. And, uh, and they and they had an abusive relationship like they tell the story about yeah. the time he couldn't play because he broke his finger presumably punching george and george is a big dude yeah. so yeah. um you know uh it's i, I I've, I've you know back in the day I, I lived next door to to a house that there was a gay couple in and they would have full-on fist fights regularly you know, wow. and uh, and one time I had to come over because they got hurt. One of them got hurt so bad that you know to call the cops and the whole bit. And so you know yeah. this stuff can get intense. And then he brings up this. Yeah. I thought what well, I thought was a pretty fascinating point was that 
In England, Culture Club, quote, retained a disturbing quality redolent of London nightlife, transvestism, and the gay art and fashion world. But in the United States, he was seen as a kind of benign extraterrestrial, a pop ET. And it is so true that yokels of Walker, Texas just thought he was funny. They didn't put it together what, you know, he was. And this leads up to the big moment where he's doing this bit with Joan Rivers by satellite and he, and he wraps it up with, thank you, America. You've got great, you've got taste, style, and no good drag queen when you see one. And supposedly Frank DeLeo, that the head of promotions for Epic Records, one of the key architects of, of culture clubs right through the States, dropped his cigar in his lap, his lit cigar, when he heard that. And the rest of the band, they knew that he had messed up. And really, I, I didn't know this at the time, but culture club was never as big as they were in 83 again. And True. You know, might have been the moment. Might have been the moment. And, how, and I mean, it is so astounding to me that that's what it took. It's like him saying two plus two is 22. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what it took. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting time. And you now with the extreme right, essentially gearing up for fascist pogroms against transvestites. Yep. I mean, it's yep. scary, scary times. Yes, and, it is. You know, and, and we got to circle the wagons and protect folks because there's always been... Yep. Transsexuals have always been part by yes, the have. and and yep. and yet, when times get crazy, we pick the you know a small group and and start picking on them. And I really want to hate on the New York Times for I think neutralizing the left on this and, and allowing the right to just go crazy with it. But that's a side note. Back to the back to 1984. Um, so then uh, he's they they build up to the album of the year. Everybody knows what album of the year is going to be, obviously. It's Thriller. And the Beach Boys are introduced, so he gets to check them off because Dennis Wilson, the drummer, had died in 1983. And uh, they introduce it. And then Michael Jackson calls up Walter Yetnikoff. And Brooks Long and I have done an episode on David Ritz's autobiography of Walter Yetnikoff, this totally over-the-top, big record executive, you know, one of the last great old-school record executives. And, and he was one of these people he wasn't really a music guy and uh, not like his mentor, Clive Davis, which I can't believe I'm saying, but I have to acknowledge Clive Davis is a music guy. Yetnikoff though was a people guy and he could manage people like Michael Jackson. He could deal with Michael Jackson. He could deal with Bruce Springsteen. He could deal with Barbara Streisand and kind of created this larger than life persona. So Jackson calls him up to share the glory and then honors Jackie Wilson, the great uh, R&B singer, who had just passed away after I think being in a coma or stroked out for like 10 years. And I know Elvis paid a lot of his medical expenses and Jackie Wilson wow. one time been called the black Elvis. Although in the nineties, a, a white guy put out a biography of Jackie Wilson called the black Elvis and got crucified for it so much so that then he writes a hmm. follow-up book with all these crackpot racist theories. Cause, cause he's been oh, so God. scarred by the experience. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a side note. Um, and then uh, let's go ahead and cue, and then we'll introduce our next piece because the next song we're going to be discussing is Herbie Hancock's Rocket.
And that was Herbie Hancock's Rocket featuring a D- Grandmaster DST, later DXT, who was doing the scratching on Rocket. Do you remember the first time you saw or heard Rocket? You know, I don't, but I, I knew exactly what song it was. Like I, The second I saw the title, I could sing it. And yeah. So I don't. I don't. And I, I look, went and looked at the video, and I barely remember that video. Yeah, it, it, it um, that melody was just there, and and the video was killer, but that was yeah. the first time I heard and saw scratching, and I can remember sitting there with like redneck big brothers of friends going, "That's not music," you know, <laughs> they're just playing a record, you know, and it's, and uh, and uh, but but this is this really key single that is a big part of mainstreaming hip hop, and because Herbie Hancock is this by this point, legendary jazz musician who'd been making great jazz albums since the early 60s. He was part of the legendary Miles Davis quintet of the 60s, the classic quintet. Uh, He had written songs like Watermelon Man that had become pop pop hits before. He heard Sly Stone's Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again in 68, and it completely turned him around, as it did with Miles Davis and many others. And so then, you know, he put out his album Headhunters, I want to say 70 maybe it was earlier than that but this is a classic funk fusion jazz fusion album and again Matos elegantly weaves in Wynton Marsalis because Hancock had produced a Wynton Marsalis album and you know this week I actually spent more time listening to Wynton Marsalis than any other artist and I've had this beef with Wynton Marsalis ever since the Ken Burns jazz documentary when I felt like Wynton and the crit- the late great critic Stanley Crouch had just crapped on so many of my favorite free jazz and fusion players they just didn't talk about that stuff it's like free jazz and j- fusion never happened and and so I've been resenting uh, Wynton Marsalis for 23 years now and then now all is forgiven. I've gone back listening to his his early jazz albums and also his early classical music albums and, and realizing what he was doing. And he was essentially playing the respectability card. And he was just so good. And it was undeniable that this guy was a legit top flight world-class musician in any category. And he... His jazz album sold like hundreds of thousands of copies. And then he does a classical album. And it was number one on the classical charts for six months. And it's really good. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I was just fascinated by that part. And, and it really surprised myself getting into Wynton Marsalis of all things. But um, it, it has this debate between Hancock and Marsalis and talks about how Hancock had deliberately minimized his own presence and the presence of any black people in the rocket video and used robots. And Marsalis just calls them out. Well, MTV's racist. And Hancock won't admit it because he wants MTV to play his stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, just elegant stuff. What's your take on Herbie and, and, and Wynton? My, you know, I'm, I'm with you on Wynton just from just being a musician no one, I mean, I'm not a jazz musician per se, but I've, you know, I knew some, and I remember just one time hearing Wenton uh, for a pretty extended period on a, on a, I think he was talking at the National Press Club on one of those National Public Radio noontime hours. And I mean, it just, I just was starting to feel oppressed by it. And because he's so, he's such a hard ass, 
or he was, and I, you know, complained to my buddy about it, and we, you know, kind of had a uh, come to, you know, we we I agreed with him on that, but I completely buy that what an incredible musician he was, and you're right, he, you know, he was like somebody is going to have to play the straight man, and he that's what he played. But I will say this: I I have a I for some reason am way more tolerant of Herbie Hancock playing um, playing Rocket and and using you know going a little commercial dressing the way he did on the Grammys than I can forgive Eddie Van Halen for playing Jump. <laughs> you know I can forgive Eddie for Jump. It's Sam, bringing Sammy Hagar in that I. Uh where Eddie lost me, but, but let's keep moving. I, um, I, that's fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But a lot, Van Halen did lose a lot of people to jump. And then David Lee Roth does his pop solo uh, EP with California girls and the old, um, I ain't got nobody medley and, and, uh, yeah. the gigolo, the Louis, great Louis Prima medley. And it was a massive hit, but that basically made Van Halen not want to be associated with him anymore. And also his ego was completely out of control. Um, So, you you know, Van Halen's not even in the chapter this week, but then then brings up up Menudo and Menudo was an interesting factor. They would, he talks about how they had had this massive sort of Beatlemania event at, at, at Radio City Music Hall two weeks before the Grammys. I think Ricky Martin was in Menudo by this time. And Menudo is like, sort of the precursor of um in sync and boys to men and uh you know that holds what new kids on the block what we think of new edition what we think of as the modern boy band perfected in the 90s i think kind of starts with menudo and it was yeah. controlled by the managers and i remember at the time that the story that would that I first heard was oh yeah they replace the, the kids every two years you know they get too old and they're replaced which gave it this artificial feel. And I, I wasn't into the live music scene. I wasn't into boy bands. So it was all, it was all lost on me what the appeal was, but obviously that massive appeal. And, um, and also are going to go on to be massively inf- influential. And this is where mm-hmm. he brings up, you know, the dark side of Michael Jackson. Cause he talks about the, the, uh, the way that the Jackson family, which is just close and very powerful family, had really bullied and pushed Michael into doing another tour with the Jacksons because Jermaine, who had quit the Jacksons because he was married to Barry Gordy's daughter. So when they left Motown, he stayed on Motown. And Barry Gordy could never make him a superstar on his own or even a star. And then he rejoins the Jacksons. And it seemed like things were not well between him and Michael. And and that's when they do the Pepsi commercial and Michael's hair catches on fire. And like we said, that's kind of the beginning of the, of the downfall of Michael Jackson. And then they talk about him getting the best children's album for narrating the ET, the extraterrestrial album. And this is where they get into the, to the Emmanuel Lewis and Brooke Shields bit. And, and um, then they bring in, what, 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 what Steph tells me it's time to cue and I'm going to nobody's expecting this one to be one of the songs I picked for uh, 1984 but here's Wynton Marsalis trumpet concerto and E flat and I didn't write down the composer I believe it's Hayden but it might be Hummel but it's really sweet and sure <laughs> Thank you. 
and that was, I believe, Hayden's trumpet concerto in E flat. Classical fans, please correct me if I'm wrong. Apologies, I don't know Jack about classical. Uh, and then Went Marsalis on, on trumpet. And this, it was just a kind of a bravura display. And this is the guy who's gonna bring jazz to the Lincoln Center and just kind of become this cultural institution. And, but in the 80s, I kind of associate him with Alex P. Keaton. He's kind of like the Alex P. Keaton <laughs> jazz. He's like this young, sort of reactionary, conservative, traditionalist. Um, but he's bringing, he's young and he's new and he's now. And the 80s was definitely a time to, a great time to be a reactionary traditionalist. <laughs> um, and then, then we bring in Prince. And uh, he's nominated for pop, Best Pop Male Vocal and no shows. Of course, Michael wins for Thriller. And he, and he talks about how after the Grammys, Thriller goes from selling 200,000 albums a week, which is massive. That's uh, over, that's platinum in six weeks to a million a week. I mean, at this point in the eighties, if you had a grandmother, she was buying you a copy of Thriller. I mean, it's, it was just everywhere, you know, Everybody, you know, you'd go to the dentist. I remember going to the dentist and I was having some horrific, bot- turns out it was a botched oral surgery. Never have a dentist oral surgery. Oh, man. And, uh, <laughs> and that was the first time I had a, saw a Walkman. They had a Walkman in the office and they had two cassettes and you could either choose Thriller or Born in the USA. And unfortunately, I chose Born in the USA, which I still hate <laughs> the burning passion of this day. I can still hear the drilling <laughs> as they cut into my gums. Um, but anyway, but you know, that's how big he was. It was like if you're gonna have two albums, one of them's gonna be thriller. Mm-hmm. And then they bring in Weird Al Yankovic and eat it. And and the two things I thought were interesting there was one, that Weird Al shouts out Michael for actually being easy to deal with. And if you could navigate the organization and get to Michael, then you know, Michael's cool, at least about doing the, the parody cover. But what I didn't know was that Rick Derringer, who you know, it was the lead guitarist, I think the singer on Hang On Sloopy, which was the McCoy's version of Burt Burns' song that went to number one, massive number one hit in 66, I want to say, maybe 65. And then he's with Johnny Winter, uh, Johnny Winter and, which is one of the worst band names ever. Um, and then Solo had a massive hit with Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. And then he goes on to be Weird Al Yankovic's partner, which I'm sure was a really entertaining and lucrative way to spend the later half of your musical career. Did you know any of this about Derringer and Weird Al? If I knew it, I had completely forgotten. And I'm a huge Rick Derringer fan, so I don't I think knew. I knew it because I was still buying his albums in 80, probably in 82. Wow, that's hardcore. Even my brother had given up on him by then, I think. But um, Yes, I yeah, was. Yeah, <laughs> he was damn good i mean yeah. john winter and rick derringer on the same stage is a lot of six-string talent and um you know you know classic 70s rock stuff but i never saw the weird weird owl angle coming at all so any final thoughts about the grammys of 1984 ed you know i think it's a i'm i'm it's going to be interesting to see where he goes from here because this is such a good summation of 83 and and the uh, the stage is set for as you as you mentioned the p word prince so yes, i think it'll be yes. interesting yes prince is coming and i think we're going to san francisco for the next chapter and I'm, i haven't reread it so uh, i'll reread it 
Next week, we'll be back and talk about it. For Ed Legg, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we are discussing Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. Come back next Monday and hear the next chapter. Thanks, Ed. All right. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate continues the Three Kings of American Pop series with the second part of his Frank Sinatra discussion with James Kaplan. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.